What's up, everybody? This is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today is going to be a fun one. It's going to be it's vegetables time, folks. We're talking about cities. We're talking about infrastructure, and we're doing it with my friend Xander. What's up, Xander? Hey, how's it going? Happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really happy to be on the show. Yeah. So this is, I'm excited that you're here because I really didn't think about urbanism at all, having lived in like second cities and smaller places where there are problems, but nothing so as eye-popping as living in Los Angeles. And over the course of my time here, I have come up with more questions than I could possibly have answers to about this strange experiment in city-states that seems to be Los Angeles, but it also made me notice problems that seem to be, I would say, thematic in the American urban landscape. And I wanted to talk to you about what the hell is going on with American cities. But before we do that, I think we should probably have you introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Uh, you get into all this. <laughs> sure. Like other people, my name is Xander and I, I work as an urban planner. My introduction to cities I suppose I was aware of it, having been born and raised in New York City, probably did a fair amount of lift, but truly it was watching my brother play SimCity mm. on computer. And that's unfortunately a lot of people's introduction to this stuff, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is totally cool and fun, but it isn't realistic about building. It, it gives you a lot more power as an urban planner than anyone in American urban planning tends to have, unless, you know, they happen to have been Robert Moses in the period where he was powerful. I was about to say, yeah, that's sort of like the, I guess, yeah, the cheat code is that SimCity is all Robert Moses mode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you had to do real mode, it would be not as fun to play, but that sort of got me into it, but it was really being exposed to not just where I grew up in New York, but then moving to Chicago for undergrad and starting because I didn't travel a lot when I was younger and just didn't really have the opportunity to travel when I was younger, aside from, you know, New York metro area. But then Chicago opened up more of the world for me. And I got to see what a different situation is like, because Chicago is a lot less dense. It's got a different transit network. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, I definitely felt like kind of trapped in a neighborhood where, you know, there wasn't as good train service. And I got to see what that was like. So that that was kind of my first introduction was to start to see like, oh, yeah, most cities are not like New York. And that's interesting. So that that's what kind of started me on it. But I kept thinking about it and undergrad pursuits into computer science failed and linguistics kind of failed too. And so I just kind of thought geography was the closest major to what I was slowly incubating in my head as being like an urban planning person. Mm. So that's sort of what my first kind of introduction was. Yeah. Just seeing also just like the very stark racial segregation and economic segregation of Chicago was <laughs> yeah a, hu- a huge eye opener because like, if you don't leave Manhattan much, people come to Manhattan. So it was kind of wool pulled up in my eyes in a way of being like, wow, like I live in such a diverse place. But like, you know, if you look at the actual residential demographics of Manhattan, you know, my neighborhood was, you know, somewhat diverse, but it was, it wasn't as segregated as Chicago, but it was segregated. And so mm-hmm. seeing that and seeing the problems that come with residual, you know, the, the racial segregation and the economic segregation of America in such stark view where you cross one street and it changes like mm-hmm. that really awoke in me like oh my gosh there's still people who are we haven't we haven't fixed this yet and there are people mm-hmm. who are still kind of against fixing it yeah yeah definitely and for all sorts of reasons too so yeah. and now you've lived in LA for a while so you've seen east coast big city midwest big city west coast big city 
Like next what, stop Honolulu. Yeah. Next stop Honolulu, baby. <laughs> um, no, so what have you noticed about the American city, if there could be a capital T, capital C, the American city, as you've lived in each of these locales? Yeah, they're all incredibly different, but they all, even you know, New York to a degree, they all had an era where you know, post-World War II excitement kind of started to change the form and they all sort of changed in the same way, which is towards a car, which is, Mm. you know, not unusual in other parts of the, you know, European and North American worlds of cities either. It's, it's, you know, they built the periphery around Paris too. So it's not like, you know, highway infrastructure is completely an American phenomenon. It's just the, the extent to that is something that is like a really common dominant feature and it entrenched existing norms that had previously been, you know, imposed via segregation laws and also via violence mm-hmm. and other sorts of exclusion. So it, it, it seeing that be a physically built feature was is definitely something I've noticed among the three. Los Angeles is just interesting in a lot of ways, though. It's really different from everywhere else, but it, you know, it does bear a lot of lessons for other cities in the future. Mm-hmm. So when when people, because I've hear, heard urban planning people talk about this before, when they say that it seems to be a, a common thing, people say, as you've just said, that when after sort of World War II and we have the economic consensus, we gear a lot of our cities towards cars. What does that actually mean for a city? Like infrastructurally, how does it change? So I think the the first place where it changes is where downtowns in cities start to compete with suburban shopping centers. You know, downtowns have long been the places where people commute to work, but also where people go to shop and have fun and people tended to live in downtowns, closer to downtowns, but those neighborhoods were often the first on the list to get turned into stadium zones and parking lots and all these things where that caters to a new suburban class of people who still want the ease of access to city stuff to, you know, occasionally have fun, but they do it less often. And they do so at the expense of what makes cities and downtowns in particular so unique. You know, cities are inevitably places where people have to make the most of space because it's where space is at a premium. And so it's a lot of people who start demanding different levels of services that they can necessarily like provide and it comes to some expense. And the the car was such a fascinating technology to people and the fact that you could access things quickly, at least for some time via freeways became just kind of the norm. And in LA, like that was really where things really got adopted. You know, even in the twenties, like the amount of cars per person shot up from being like minuscule, like everywhere else in America to being the most car dense, like one car per 20 people. And then eventually it became one car per person. And then it exceeded that. So it, it just like shot up like a, like a huge, like spike graph in LA. And that, that mm-hmm. caused a lot of disruption in terms of, you know, neighborhoods got split in half because of freeways and downtown centers became catered to the nine to five worker and almost no one else because people were having fun in their new suburban shopping malls. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where at least some of the, the shifts in how cities are seen, you know, how cities are lived in rather became about. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny, like <clears throat> you say certain phrases so often you forgot, you forget what they actually mean, but I think that that's, part of why in the 80s and 90s, people keep referring to it as like inner city poverty or mm-hmm. inner city violence. And it's because yeah. all of the wealth stuff leaves the downtown area 
Yeah. Uh, even if people still go down there to work, which is true of LA, right? Like people go downtown, like they have their city jobs there, they have their firm there, and then they get out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah. And of course that started to reverse when, you know, first waves of gentrification or what we would probably call gentrification start happening where mm-hmm. you do get some people who are interested in the lower real estate values. You, you know, you start to see the effect of the, the sort of donut effect of like, you know, initially you see like, you know, I think Chicago's uses the example of the downtown areas, like where, you know, nobody lives anymore and it's kind of inhospitable in whatever ways. Mm-hmm. And then the first ring gets a little wealthier and then the second ring. So you get the sort of donut effect, but then people start moving into places like downtown LA because of the cheaper real estate. There's certain types of industries like arts, which kind of are this vanguard of like mm-hmm. people wanting to move in because they have, they have space for an old industrial loft. And it's, you know, the, the landlord will look the other way if they happen to start living in there full time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what happened in Soho too. And inevitably that gets, that changes the cachet of a neighborhood. It makes it more desirable. And then the process starts, starts to reverse itself. I think American cities are kind of unique in the fact that we had just such like this stark change like compared with like inner Paris which never really like deadened and always was pretty valuable and remains Mm -hmm. valuable to this day to people central cities in America had a kind of bizarre you know downturn that doesn't really reflect a lot of the world I mean maybe in the UK but like American and Canadian cities saw like people flee from central cities and then start to it's only starting to come back in the past in like 90s onwards, I would say, is like where you start to see bigger developers and firms interested in redeveloping those places, building on the parking lots, which used to be, you know, department stores and other office buildings, mm-hmm. and making the city, a de- like the inner city, a denser, more lived in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is also an experience that happened in American cities in the sort of Sunshine Belt, the South, especially as there was some capital flight from the North in terms of manufacturing firms, right? So this isn't the first time. Austin has experienced this big boom of people no. moving in or Dallas or Houston or wherever it's happened several times. And you can see all those old aerial photographs. It's like how the density has shifted, you know, entire things just gone to make room for the amount of cars in that area or whatever. Yeah. And it's unclear to me, like what, maybe this sounds silly. I don't know. I'm not an urban planning guy, but I don't understand like what the social experience of an American city is supposed to be at this point. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it it sort of depends because I would kind of, the experience is so different city to city, but I think broadly speaking, two categories that might be helpful to kind of understand it is where you look at places where the economy is either still humming along and maybe not, maybe the population's not growing super fast, but you know, New York is still like a growing city with a pretty strong economy, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, you, you kind of have like either you're growing or you're kind of not, you know, those, and those places are, I think kind of similar enough that you can kind of group them in those, those two categories where it's like, you're either growing or you're not. So like, you know, Toledo and Detroit and Cleveland all have a lot more in common, not just because they're in the Midwest, but because of the sort of the dynamics of going on. And that's not to say that like housing issues aren't a problem there. The housing issues are just like pretty concentrated. Like, yeah, sure. Downtown Detroit is not as cheap as it but that's not the same thing as, oh my God, everyone is getting displaced <laughs> in, <laughs> in inner yeah. San Francisco because there's just like the housing crisis going on or, you know, in Austin where like, you know, the population keeps going up and up and up. It, it's just like, 
they're two different problems of like they're, they're both emblematic of inequality and how they both kind of do stem from what I think is sort of a lack of state intervention and a lack of like the state really having a handle on the, the problem at hand. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is where I have another question about mm-hmm. the role of the state and its relationship to the city. Yeah. Because of the way in which America is federalized. Like when we stay, say, state, what are we talking about? Should there be national urban policy? Should it be distributed amongst the states? Like, and, and I guess we'll just throw a bunch of questions on here in a while. Like when you have, it sounds like you have a vision of what that intervention should be like. So hopefully we'll get there and talk <laughs> about that as well. But let's start with what do we mean by that? Yeah, I don't know if I have a vision first off, but I have some suggestions, but we'll get to that. So I think, should we have a national urban policy? I think the answer is probably yes. I think it would definitely be better to have some sort of direction from the federal government that disperses funds for specific purposes in terms of like housing, because like housing, we don't really have a strategy and in transportation in particular, we get, you know, kind of the the typical formula for like a lot of federal spending money is Mm -hmm. For transportation, at least, is like we're going to spend the bulk of it on highways, and then state DOTs will take that money and say, "Great, we can keep adding more lanes," which will end up becoming a, a horrendous maintenance backlog, which you know states never anticipate because they keep on thinking the growth machine will keep on going forever. But then you ask how Illinois has been faring with that, or Ohio, mm-hmm. or other states where the tax returns, especially as people in you know Republican-led state houses like keep on pushing lower taxes, the result of that is that you get lower maintenance mm-hmm. and on a bigger and bigger maintenance backlog. So I, I'm kind of sp- spiraling out into a too many directions and and just talking about highways, but in all in all <laughs> generality, just in all, just to sort of sum up, like it would be better to have some sort of urban policy, but at the the specific of what is the issue and the the, the federal system, I. I think does get a lot of leeway to states and, you know, states don't necessarily want to pursue like, you know, you know, Pete Buttigieg can talk about like how highways divided places and we can start, you know, funding, ripping out freeways, which I largely think is a good idea in my, in my personal opinion, but like, mm-hmm. you know, try to get, try to get some of the engineers at a state department to agree with that is another, that's not a political hurdle we've even thought of jumping over yet mm. you know mm. so it, it's it's just like a it the the system trickling down in the u.s and other sort of like common law cities you know you could even probably see this in australia i would imagine like all these sorts of common law derived systems that the, the sort of power doesn't really flow down in a way that i think necessarily makes that a feasible thing right now it could be i just haven't seen it <laughs> mm. Mm. okay so I mean, it seems like one of the challenges for a federal urban strategy then is, first of all, getting the states on board. But that's true of every federal policy. Yes. So that's not unique. However, there are some unique features to it that we haven't considered. One would be the state engineers, as you've brought up. I'm sure there are a whole host of other interests or obstacles that are involved with that. But we've already talked about how there are at least a few different types of cities and dynamics within those cities how would, what type of federal plan could accommodate for that level of diversity of challenge? I mean, part of it is just about focusing on outcomes and Mm. saying like, do you actually, New York, want your transit system to succeed? Like, we'll give you money to do it. It's just Mm -hmm. like, are you, do you have like, you know, the maintenance backlog 
that you can show us and that we would be happy to, you know, give a check and thumbs up to and give you a check for, do you have the sort of projects where you are kind of sensibly making bus routes better? Like there's not a lot of operations talk. And I think there's a lot on capital expenses, which has kind of led a lot of cities to pursue streetcar projects, which, you know, mm -hmm. Portland streetcar, people loved it. And I think the primary reason that people like to cite it is because it increased real estate values in downtown Portland, <laughs> literally no other mobility benefits than what a bus would it ever handle because it's a mixed traffic streetcar, but yeah. my opinion only, but so it, it's like, there's a lot of focus in terms of public transit, at least if we just look at that one side of the equation on creating new shiny toys and not a lot on operations. The federal government used to fund operations. And I think transit operations in the wake of COVID have been kind of decimated. I think if there's like some sort of new standards of saying like, look, states, like you can get all this good transit operations and states do typically want money. You mm -hmm. know, they don't, they don't want to like bite the hand that feeds them. But like, if you get them transit operation money, I think there's at least a potential for them to take it if you put in some certain standards in terms of like operator pay. Like the, one of the big reasons why we're not getting enough bus operators and in Los Angeles in particular, we're seeing canceled bus rides is that not enough people are working for, you know, being bus drivers. Mm -hmm. And why would they? I mean, if it's, it's sub $20 pay per hour starting out, and it's stressful as hell, man. It does not yeah. look like an easy job, especially in Los Angeles. It's stressful. I mean, yeah. And the, and the new people are usually given the toughest routes. Yeah. And I mean, traffic in LA is your job <laughs> if you're yeah. a bus driver, right? Yeah. I think it's just also like, exactly. And it's like, there are ways to solve that problem too and make things easier for bus riders. I mean, like you looked before the pandemic hit, New York had done the 14th street busway, which basically said there would be enforcement to say, hey, buses only unless you're making a local delivery. Mm -hmm. And that completely sped up the buses and it made it so that like they could effectively get more buses per hour, but it wouldn't be actual buses you'd have to buy. You just can complete your route sooner and then turn back around. So right. it's like, there's all sorts of solutions out there. There's just kind of not necessarily like the leadership of the federal government to take it on. And then at the state governments too, it's really varied. I mean, you do have some people working really strongly together. I mean, California is changing things. We'll see how it goes. But in terms of like an actual state policy forward on like favoring active transportation and 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 transit, you know, we'll we'll see what happens at the state level here. But like other states could do that. But again, it is kind of boils down to like leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard too because there are cities. You know, I've lived in mid-sized cities, so one of them was Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it would be very hard to make a case. I think. Morally, it's easy to make a case for why Tallahassee should have more public transit. Sure. In terms of like city size and all sorts of other things and the type of funding it has, there are other harder cases to make. And I mean, it has a totally, like, I understand, it seems like somebody designed their bus routes with not a lot to work with and they did the best they could. So it's like yeah. one big butterfly. Yeah. Right. So you have the central hub downtown and then every bus route runs in a circle off of one of the corners uh, <laughs> of yes. the bus route so that if you want to get to downtown, sometimes you have to go on an entire loop around one quadrant of the city just to get to the bus station so you can transfer and then do another loop around. I mean, it can work, but, it, but it's hard. So that's a, yeah, that's a local political decision. I mean, the, the, the city or, where, or the county or wherever is deciding these routes you know, I, I can't speak to specifically Tallahassee's example, but often the case is you, they have to make a choice of 
do they want to be able to have this map and be able to say, hey, you know, 90% of people in this city have access to transit mm -hmm. right by their door, like in a five minute walk of their doorstep, mm -hmm. you know, they may not have the money at this point, or they have a finite budget to run bus service. So they may not be able to do straight line routes with frequent transit, you know, connections where it's like the easiest thing to do, you know, it's to ride transit, you know, if they don't have that level of service, then they're kind of forced to do this sort of maybe what could be politically expedient is, you know, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think the transit planners there are like purposefully being obtuse or stupid. No, neither do I. I mean, like, no, they just have to solve the typical, yeah. the tough political decision of like, do you want coverage or do you want more concentrated service? Because we can't have both because mm -hmm. we don't have enough money. Right. So obviously, yes, you're right. The moral thing to do is to increase funding for transit in places like even mid-sized cities, mid-sized mm -hmm. metros like that, because that would help solve the problem. But if you don't have that problem solved and you don't have a government that's going to solve that problem, that's a tough political choice to make to say like, because you will end up probably making some people who are regular transit riders lives worse, even if you do like make the overall system better for more people. It's mm -hmm. it's just like, that's a that's a tough political consequence. And as a planner, we are the, the frontline people getting yelled at by people for all these different decisions. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> Please yeah. don't make my life hard. I'm kidding, it's my job, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, but I mean, that's sort of the, you know, if you're doing anything politically, you get maybe, depending, I would say like, maybe you get five options maximum. If you don't have a lot of money, maybe you get one or 1.5. And yeah. your job is to make the least bad decision out of the options you're being given. And a lot of those are dictated by the resources that have been allocated to you and the political maneuvering that it's going to require. In other words, basic transaction cost stuff yeah. in terms of getting things done. So there's a whole pragmatic element to this. And I mean, it also seems like the transit issues run into the housing issues. Yes. Or at least the real estate issue. That's true, especially in California, but I don't think that's totally unique to California. No. <laughs> I think, what was it, Santa Monica that forced the LA like Metro to reroute something along a fault line because they didn't want it to run under a school? Oh, so LA Metro has been engaged in lawsuits with Beverly Hills. That's what regarding, it is, yeah. Regarding the route of the now soon to be completed, or you know, in a couple of years theoretically, mm -hmm. the, the the subway extension, the West Side subway extension. So that that yes, that's that's certainly a, a big example. <laughs> right. So how does how does that? I don't want to say Xander, tell me how to solve everything. Just I have the us, answer. It's fine. Yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah. I don't. I don't. <laughs> please don't ask me that. Um, but walk us through like some of the dynamics here of how these two issues collide with each other. Yeah, it, it's about certain constituencies want something and certain constituencies don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think is is. Are you telling the, me it's about interest? <laughs> yeah, there's there's some people who value the subway, and there's some people who don't. Or you know, like it. it, it we could broaden it out to a lot of examples, but every I think every metro area probably has an example of people who are like. I'm totally cool with the train, please get the train. And then there's mm -hmm. a different municipality that says no, and you have to connect the two and you have to go through. And if you don't, if you don't go through the, like the, the NIMBY part then, or the, the, the part that isn't as happy mm -hmm. with the proposal, you know, then you don't have a project. So it, the, 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 the amount of like lawsuits that can happen in California is also just interesting too, but it, I think there's probably other American places where there's a lot of litigiousness around urban planning projects and 
but oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I, <laughs> I know that, you know, New York is when the last hurricane hit or the tropics, whatever the hell it was, it was clear that like New York was not even ready for the present, let alone the future. And I, I wrote a piece about it called Undeveloping America. Mm-hmm. And somebody pointed out, they were just like, yeah, I mean, some of your critiques of like the national outlook on this are all well and good, but like some of these neighborhoods where we should be building like higher seawalls, like just won't let you do that. No, I mean, I know, I mean, New York, I don't know the, the full politics of it. I think they are trying to buy back some properties as on like Staten Island's coast where mm-hmm. they then want to hold it. So it's not developed anymore because it's, it's going to flood, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough when people's attachment to home and place are, are that strong because it's like, and if they have the property and they can't, they're not, they're not going to let it go. There's no, you know, the cities are also like pretty reluctant to use eminent domain because yeah. they were, you know, when you, when you talk about Kilo versus new London, which is like a big Supreme court case where the Supreme court basically said, yeah, if you can, there's a lot of reasons you can use eminent domain. Actually, you can use it to, you know, give a pharmaceutical company a lot of land in downtown New London, Connecticut, and that's mm-hmm. totally cool. Even if the project never pans out, you know, that really opened the door. But the political backlash was so big that a lot of states, and you know, in re- in reaction to this Supreme Court case, were saying like, no, we're going to purposely limit ourselves mm-hmm. in eminent domain. So it's like a lot of places understand the sort of the political implications of the state taking over land. And so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I wish that we could do this of, you know, a lot of planners or, or even just some advocates saying like, I wish that we could, you know, take over the housing that, you know, is vacant in our city and then rent it out at a low price to people who need it. You know, that, but the, the laws aren't there. And I don't know if there's the momentum to change that. And mm-hmm. I'm not even, you know, I'm not going to say whether that's the right thing to do anyway. And the, the right in that case, who knows? It's just it's just really but. illustrative of how difficult these things can be to work out. I mean, it's yeah. interesting to me that there's big, this big Supreme Court case, and then the backlash is so big that it ends up being a pyrrhic victory. Yeah, yeah. So like you know the 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 city of New London, you know, to this day, like held the land to create this new you know, work this big office complex campus. I'm not exactly the, sure of the specifics, but, you know, they pulled out because they just couldn't, you know, the company said that they couldn't make it work. They maybe didn't like the PR around it after a while. And, you know, then we're just kind of left with the worst of all worlds where like, hey, a woman just lost her house after losing the Supreme Court case and she can't go back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's yeah. so nobody wins really. And, mm-hmm. and then we don't even really get the state power to like potentially use that for something that people do want. Right, right, right. So this makes me think of like, what are some common misconceptions that you'd say abound when we're looking at urban policy, whether it's housing or transit or whatever? Like, what are some things yeah. that really grind your gears? <laughs> it's, I mean, you could say a lot grinds my gears. So yeah. <laughs> in Strictly in terms of misconceptions. though. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the one that's just the eternal one is that people don't, I don't think people understand how constant traffic is going to be. And because that can make it feel really fatalistic because Mm -hmm. a lot of people, they, you know, I think a lot of people will optimistically vote in favor of a transit measure thinking like, okay, cool. Like I, as a driver, will see less traffic on the road because Mm -hmm. I'm, I voted for this great, you know, bond measure or tax measure to create new transit lines. And that means more people will get off the road instead of, you know, Mm -hmm doing that, that's not going to work. Long and short is that that's not, 
the, the, the kind of rule of traffic congestion is that the moment that capacity gets freed up, so you get more lanes or you, you see a reduction in traffic because immediately something else happens, it's going to fill up at least within a year. I mean, unless you like, you know, destroy a city with a nuclear bomb maybe, mm -hmm. or like, mm -hmm. you know, something rips or through. like literally all of the wealth disappears within it. And so there just aren't yeah. people living there. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah. If you want it, like, you know, Detroit's traffic got a lot better after a while. Yeah. <laughs> but, Dude, RIP. <laughs> right. I yeah. mean, like that, Detroit's not dead. They're, they're coming. They're, they're mm -hmm. fine. And I, mm -hmm. I don't want to anger any of your Michiganer, Michiganders uh, who may be listening. No, we love Detroit here. Detroit's great. So, but it, it's, it, the truth is like you can never ever ever get rid of traffic congestion in the way that you want it where you get to go fast and you know <laughs> you can never there's no way in making you the happiest person for free to like travel down and and to you're you know subway expansion is not going to get rid of traffic in la it's just not yeah it's going to be great i'm really excited for it you know mm -hmm. as somebody who grew up on public transit and using it. And I think a lot more people will be new to it. I mean, it's going to be awesome to have like a route between Westwood and LA to downtown LA that will get you there in 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's transformative. That's faster that's than, a, that's, that's faster than a freeway at 2 AM, mm -hmm. no matter what. And yeah. we don't have a lot of transit routes in LA where it's like, oh no, this is always faster than traffic. Yeah. We have, most of our transit doesn't do that yet, but it could change. But so that's, that's kind of the, the thing is that it, it kind of, that sort of, I think, political calculus is trying to get people to vote for more and more pro transit stuff or pro stuff. It, it could theoretically run up against a wall of people just being frustrated and saying like, this isn't working. Where's mm -hmm. the promise? You know, and the, the truth is all the things that make transit better or make housing better. These are solutions that take a lot of time, especially when we've been kind of digging ourselves into a worse and worse hole with, you know, service cuts. And then obviously the pandemic caused a lot of issues with uh, transit operations here or, you know, housing, you know, sort of got better for a sec because people didn't know how this pandemic would work. But now you see cities, even like Spokane, Washington, getting, you know, high housing costs for the first time mm -hmm. akin to akin to cities in the region. Like, you know, you get more Seattle-like prices in Spokane, which is mm -hmm. insane. Yeah, Shocking. that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Decongestion's not going to happen. Stop trying to make it happen. That's that's one of the things here. Sure. What I'm interested in one around like how people think of density. Yeah. Like to me, it seems like there um, are a lot. There's a lot of conventional wisdom on either side, which makes me skeptical of both. <laughs> What's right? What are you talking about? So, so I'm talking about people who are like, I don't want to get in the pod and eat the bugs and do try rise. <laughs> And then I, I want everything to be 19th century walkable street shops, you know, or whatever that has a dynamic street level experience. And then there are the people who are like, you fool, uh, you fucking idiot. It's all about density because otherwise you can't even attempt to have the other things that you want. Yeah. I mean, on that last point, uh, seeing certain neighborhoods densify could help solve some problems, but sure. it, again, it, it's about kind of how you do it. So when it, when it comes to, right, it's always down to like how, right. So I mean, yeah. that's sort of what I'm driving <laughs> at is that yeah. like, there's these sort of like meme positions yes. that obscure, like, again, the actual like operations of what you want and how to get it. Yeah. So yeah, don't the, the pods and bugs thing, I guess let's, tackle that up first. I think people, people sort of see how they live as immutable. Mm -hmm. You know, if you live in a 3000 square foot 
home in the suburbs of Houston and that's the way you like. Again, if you, if you like your uh, folks, if you like your doctor, you can keep it. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, that, yeah. but that's an actual promise. Like if you own your property, like you're not, you're not going anywhere. I mean, oh, hell no. yeah, if you're a renter, I'm sorry, I don't have great news for you, but <laughs> unless you're like, you have a lot more generous and better uh, rental protections, but mm-hmm. uh, renter protections, but the, the, the idea that like, I don't want to do that. I guess the answer I would have is like, then don't. <laughs> the The whole point is that the people who are calling for density, you do get some people who are kind of romantics about it and they can kind of not be, you know, like a, a denser Los Angeles can still be Los Angeles. It certainly will not be strolling through Greenwich Village yeah. <laughs> or central Paris or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be the LA version of what that is. And which is what makes cities cool. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, Mexico city is completely different, but it's like, a denser place that it has a lot of interesting stuff. I haven't been, I just hear great things, but it's, it's all about, again, it's, it is about how you do it because you can choose to live in space constrained 150 square foot, you know, micro unit living. That's an Mm -hmm. option. But the, the, the thing is, is that in too many cities, the option is, you know, single family home, or you're going to rent an apartment that's, you know, made of cardboard or something falling apart or something mm-hmm. like it. So when you do present, I guess the, the, I don't want to live in a pod people do a point where it's like, yeah, when you don't have good examples of urbanism done in a way that's like interesting and relating to the natural environment of where this place is like, yeah, it can feel pretty alienating to like go to the denser parts of your city, which are crowded, noisy, and, the homes don't have soundproofing and the, the, the transit's bad because there's bad in the entire region. It can feel really kind of stifling and not fun, but the truth is there are examples everywhere. And it's, it's also just funny because like, I feel like a lot of people who complain about density in their own hometowns, if they live in some like Bay area suburb, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't want dense housing coming out despite the mounting, mounting housing crisis there they still take vacations to Tokyo or to Paris or to <laughs> London and they love yeah. it. They even just go to New York or they even just like go to downtown San Francisco and they have a nice meal there and a nice time. And then they go on about their lives. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe they also take time to tweet about a crime wave or something, you know, just cause they're paranoid. But like the, 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 the feeling I'm getting is like, it, yes, people do sort of romanticize density because of there are wonderful touristy parts mm-hmm. of, being on vacation in Paris, but the, the reality is that, you know, people do live there and people do find a way. I think the, the thing to keep in mind is that people are a lot more flexible than they think. And at the same time, it's about if you offer enough choice, then the person who wants to continue to live in the pod can live in the pod. And the person mm-hmm. who can, wants to live in their McMansion, like, you know, as long as they upkeep their McMansion, it's theirs. <laughs> it's, it's, about, it's about choice, you know, like in the city of Los Angeles in particular, I know that three quarters of all residential zone land is single family only only. So it's like, Jesus. It, it's, it is really like skewed, you know, when you yeah, no. as a market, you don't have like a lot of, you know, for purchase, you don't really have like a lot of purchasing where it's like, Oh, I want to live in like, you know, a nice apartment somewhere that where I can walk to shops. Like that choice doesn't exist a lot of places, you know, you mm. have, it, it's if you if you liven up the amount of choices that people have, I, I, I think it could kind of cool off the rhetoric. But yes, Twitter is a really toxic place where you're seeing the like, 
city things, you know, yeah, play well, out. I mean, I guess also there, there's this element of it, which is what to do with developers, what to do with the state and what to do with local politics. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the things that people are concerned about is that some interests will come in and dehumanize or disfigure the space that they know and love while kicking yeah. them out of it. Yeah. And as you and I have talked about uh, at the top of this, we have like a host of examples we can po- uh, point to where that exact sort of thing happens. So it feels like as so much with uh, institutions in America now, there's a big trust deficit with how competently the powers that be are going to handle change, whether it be private capital or whether it be the state, frankly. Yeah. No, I think I think you're you're right. I think there is like a really big inability to trust places because frankly, we've defanged a lot of the functions of the state, you know, like the state broadly. I mean, like that could Mm -hmm. be federal government, state government, local local government. Yeah. So, you know, when certain things get, you know, cut and, you know, like you you get department consolidations that don't make sense or you, you, you've seen layoffs. I mean, like you, you were still kind of living in the aftermath of both the, both the sort of like the Reagan era of I don't trust the state to accomplish anything. So let's just not accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. And we're also recovering from a recession from Mm -hmm. the 2008 recession, like the the long, long arc of the recession for it to get better from 2008 onwards, like took a lot out of state capacity. There were a lot of people who took, you know, early retirement. So a lot of institutional knowledge just kind of went out. And so that's always hard. That's always hard when you lose that. Yeah. And it, it, that, you know, that's what can kind of help slow down a lot of the city processes. So if somebody's just like, I'm just trying to like get a permit done for, you know, my garage to get built. What Mm -hmm. the hell is going on? Why is it taking so long? You know, like you get that, it it trickles down to all sorts of functions where people get dissatisfied and rightfully so. I mean, in, in particular here in Los Angeles, I've read articles and have heard stories about people who work in the homeless services stuff and people get shuffled around all the time the pay is bad mm-hmm. or it's, it's not, it's definitely not good enough. So people quit. And then, you know, the people who are unhoused are then left to fend for getting an, you know, getting a new person handling their case who doesn't know their details and they don't get enough information, you know, when they first sign on, cause they get a newbie. And like, so it's just like this compounding effect of like the services just become less trusted at every single level, whether you're a pretty comfortable person or you're not. So it, mm-hmm. it you know, and, and it, there's not a lot of just like education from the state level about like, if you're a renter, what are your rights? And so it's kind mm-hmm. of left to nonprofits. And sometimes those nonprofits don't get to everybody in time because how could they, they don't have the money to do that. They don't have the wherewithal to do that. So it's, it's a, it's a huge kind of like, there's a lot of inertia towards things just keeping getting worse sometimes, but like, it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> no, certainly it doesn't. And listening to you talk about this, it it makes me wonder like what for you right i don't need you to talk like universally but strictly like your opinion yeah what is a well structured city like what elements does it have like what do we this is generally part of like a larger conversation of like what do we want from the city yeah. You know, you know what i mean like it seems like so much is just on default mode that we don't even think about that yeah, I, so think, I just want to hear from you. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, in my opinion, 
I have a friend of mine, a close friend of mine who's from Austria originally. And like, he was just able to like, you know, solve them. I lost my passport or I need a renewal thing by mm-hmm. just like walking up to the place. And they're like, Oh yeah, hang on. We'll get it to you tomorrow. Like come on back tomorrow. And it's good mm-hmm. for you. Like that level of customer service is really good. And like, that's what I think all city like face-to-face interactions have to be like, mm-hmm. I really do think like, it's just sort of the simple stuff should be easy, but I think it's also like, it's, it's so, I think also an ideal city has, you know, a pretty politically aware population. I think mm-hmm. a lot of cities have long structured their governments and their election timings to be such that people don't come and vote because why mm-hmm. would they, you know, when you don't have a vote that's like lined up with presidential elections, like we've seen this in LA, we've just changed our elections over as of last election cycle to be in line with presidential elections and midterms. And, you know, you get tons more turnout. And that means that you get a much more representative body voting because it's not just the most motivated, you know, like it seeing a, you know, 10% turnout in the last mayoral election is just absurd to me. You know, like that's like, I remember friends of mine in Chicago, which also has off cycle elections still to this day, people in Chicago are like, oh, we only had 20% turnout. I'm like, LA had 10 percent yeah and that's like yeah 10 10 percent of nearly four million people is like bupkis that's pretty yeah. <laughs> it's pretty upsetting. yeah uninspiring so pretty uninspiring yeah. so i think it, it it's the city's job to fix that too i think it, to to sort of uh, see where its institutional failings are and recognizing it and it, it's you know to la's credit and to like most of like california cities at this point's credit like we are now on cycle and things are changing so i think having that sort of population awareness is really important because I don't think we've had representative enough, you know, leadership in a lot of cities in America mm-hmm. generally. That's just my opinion. Is just like the the leadership could just still stand to be able to listen to more people. But you know, there's a lot of factors. We could go into more physical factors. What what do you want to hear more of? Well, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I would like to hear some physical factor stuff. I think um, yeah. because there's such a diverse. I've lived all over America now. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah that I've seen a lot of different versions of what this looks like from the sort of like endearing ridiculousness of everything in Santa Fe <laughs> being made Adobe, yes. like even the McDonald's, you know, that's to, pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. To like the, what the fuck is going on? Who knows experience of Florida to whatever the fuck is happening in California. And then also growing up in and around Chicago and going to college on the East coast and stuff like that. I feel like I've seen a pretty representative thing and it has left me like totally driftless in terms of what I should or could expect from a city experience. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, I love parks and plazas is kind of like my baseline thing. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I I mean, fair. That's one of the things I love about Chicago, right? Oh yeah. Parks everywhere. There's something about walking through a park in summertime and smelling somebody using one of the public grills and hearing the oh, yeah. ding of an aluminum bat because people are playing softball oh, somewhere yeah. in the background. It's just wonderful. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it was so cool. I mean, like, I lived close to, like, a playground, too, when I was on the north side living there, and it was super nice. And, just, like, there was a playground. And, yeah, even on the south side when I was living there, like, the, the playground there was always in use. So, it, yeah, I think just, like, my ideal, I think, which you seem to agree with, is, like, more public space because it enhances public you know happiness and so it i think just having that is really important but it's also important to see like where people are demanding that too i mean one thing i kind of love about la is that there's such like this gaze of not trusting the public commons that is embedded in the 
uh, very fabric of the city. You, you get these hilariously wide streets that make no sense and they're pitiful yeah. to do anything other than drive through. You get all sorts of people who are, you know, like driving way too fast and unsafely, but like you see such a yearning for the commons and you see that people really want it. And no matter how many attempts there are to stamp it out via enforcing, you know, pretty backwards laws on street vending or things like that, people are still doing it. And so like you, you go to like certain corners, like there's a corner in East Hollywood. I like bike through sometimes where there's always a couple people selling pupusas on a, like an outdoor grill situation. Oh, hell yeah. I know what you're talking about. And then, yeah, yeah, there's always a ton of people out there. It's amazing. Oh yeah. 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 And like on like a residential corner too, like no commerce is, (laughs) yeah, no commerce is allowed. And like, no people still find a way. And then, you know, diagonal across the street from there is somebody who's like using the, the fence outside her apartment building to like hang up clothes on hangers and have a little like clothing sale every Mm. weekend. So it's like, there are clearly people yearning for like a common space outdoors where people can just be mm-hmm. <laughs> and people can just, people can, you know, you know, hawk their wares and things like that. But it's also just like a place where people could just hang. And mm-hmm. I think you, that's such a common thing to, to do. And I, like, it, it's, it comes naturally to a lot of different cities where they, they pedestrianize streets and like, but it, you know, you know, Amsterdam wasn't that way where you had tons of pedestrianized streets near schools and therefore they're safer. Like it, it took, effort to make that happen and it can t- it will take effort to make it happen here in America but i think mm-hmm. that's that's something to aim towards is like just more comments more <laughs> more of what makes it kind of worth it to be in a city because you do sacrifice something by giving up you know the expanses of space that you'd be able to buy and god knows where in the middle of I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to come off as being dismissive of those places, but you know, just like being somewhere where space is more abundant, you know, like the, 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 the price you pay for giving up more of your personal space and maybe you live in a smaller living situation is it, the, the reward should be, but you get this other stuff. So mm-hmm. fixing that imbalance, I think is really key to making cities better and making them have more trains and buses. But yeah. That's my, yeah. That's so I mean, preference. right, right, right. So we want, we want it, things to be accessible. But there's also this sense that spontaneity, public space, and uh, a sense of, let's say, social solidarity all sort of come together. And that it seems, I mean, this is what really sort of worries me about post-pandemic life, Mm -hmm. is that it shunted so much life out of in-person experience into the digital realm that, and the digital realm is such a weird like quasi experience that maybe this is just sort of the, the caveman in me, but (laughs) I worry about the experience of the digital spaces impact on our values of the tactile space of the city. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you're, you're, you're worried that. It will habituate people to the screen to yeah. a sort of the private inner uh, experience of a pseudo public, which is media, yeah. and that those desires will be reflected in what they want out of cities. In other words, a sort of indifference to public space, a sort of this, that, and the other. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, I guess my counter to that could be is that you look at, I mean, I think a lot of just anecdotally, maybe this isn't borne out in real life, but I do feel like I do talk to people when I do find the occasional friend who's not a planner or is not interested in urban planning the way that maybe you are. I I find that they aren't aware of like 
I was just like, hey, like, oh man, this place is so noisy. Can we go around the corner? They don't notice like the street noise of like mm -hmm. being on La Brea or some other street in yeah. LA where it's desperately loud and you can't hear your own self think. So it, 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 there's still a lot of consciousness raising where people aren't aware of what makes their city work and not work or for them you know mm -hmm. and it's always it's always going to be different according to different opinions obviously but like i think there's also kind of an opportunity in the world that you're kind of proposing where it's like if the digital space is what people get accustomed to will it impact the way that people want cities i'm thinking maybe yes but maybe it's in the other direction maybe they really do want a place where it's like there's really no need to bring like feel like you want to read your phone by yourself here because mm. it's enough of a place where you can people watch or you can you know look up at trees or you can look at nice architecture or something right you know it, it, there's another there's an opportunity there to make the outdoor world the best virtual reality ever because it's just better you know, you know <laughs> the metaverse is to me is not promising and i don't think people are no. necessarily going to value that the same way that they would you know the meat space i think that's a pretty compelling counter and this is not so as somebody who has lived all over the country at this point, yes. this is another thing that I worry about because I think there are actually political consequences to having people who don't settle down in a city mm -hmm. or who only spend a couple of years there. You know, yeah. like I haven't really, there's been no reason for me to ever pay attention to city politics wherever I've lived for the most part. Sure. You know, because I was, except for, you know, I thought I was going to spend a way longer period of time in Santa Fe that ended up yeah. not happening. But, you know, it's sort of like, why would I care? I'm out in a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's a valid point. But, mm -hmm. you know, the the whole point is that for urban planning decisions, like so much of the stuff that I care about and that I work on in my work or that I see other people working on, it's not going to get realized to its fullest potential ever that in a way that I could probably experience it, even though, mm. you know, I'm not, I'm not 30. I'm not even 30 yet, but like, mm -hmm. you know, there's like the, the whole way to kind of gear yourself around urban planning is that you have to understand that change happens and it's so slow and that's okay. You know, like you just kind of accept it and you just realize like, mm. there's always something better to fight for. Even if you're like only in a place for a little bit of time, it's like, well, you could still see what the contours of the politics are and you can still see what the arguments are that they're fighting for right now. Cause it's going to result in a result, like in something, you know, 30 years down the line and you may not be living there anymore, mm -hmm. but it's still something that you could have had an impact on. But that sort of, maybe this, that sort of hopefulness is not good for this podcast when it's a, the podcast about no, I, things I, that feel possible anymore. Well, it's why they don't feel possible, right? Not why they aren't possible. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, so, that's, a that's a really crucial distinction, right? Because I think that there will be some pendulum swinging back stuff, right? And per perhaps yeah. one of my pie in the sky hopes is that <laughs> there will be a return to local media. Because yeah. I think that's really important. I and think people are to, hungry for it too. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think there's going to be burnout around paying attention to national politics all the time. Yeah. Um, and what that does, I, I hope that there's a way for that business model to be made profitable because I think it's really, really important for there to be a local press. I mean, I think not just because like people know what's going on, but because it helps people see their own community and to experience it as a community. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that it's, it's important that it is a sort of like media, you know, ecosystem as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, next door citizen, the app sort of space, because I think the sort of 
the the unhinged voice can get a lot of comments in mm-hmm. the next door threads where it's just like people can really gather around pretty fake messages about what's happening in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And if you have somebody who's actually able to kind of speak to multiple sides, interpret, I think you're right in that local media could kind of be a salve for a lot of the issues that to at least, you know, raise consciousness about what happens in cities. Cause otherwise, you know, if, if national media is able to ignore it, then it, people will get upset because if, if, you know, your sidewalk's not getting repaired enough or quickly enough, like people are going to notice and raise hell, mm-hmm. but that's not something that you're going to see on CNN. Right. And why would you like, why you would you? yeah, it's not, see, their, that's not, it's not their job. job. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, okay. yeah. So no, you let, go ahead, yeah. yeah. Let me, let me add to this. Another question that yeah. I have for you. Sure. I think my assumption, and I feel like this is shared is that all of these decisions are basically, basically lock pu- the public out and it's just totally administered by random experts and developers and there's no way to know or pay attention to how the stuff gets built. It just sort of spontaneously happens in some room with a conference table, and you'll never know what's going to happen next. I don't think that's true anymore. And so the question I'm tacking onto this is, how do people start to learn how to pay attention to their own city? Oh, yes. It's really tough. I mean, there's a lot of public disclosure laws of like what goes on, but again, the information doesn't necessarily reach people because... You're not getting a letter about it at your house. You're not getting an email about it. And, but there's always a local organization that's paying attention. You know, we kind of have them here in Los Angeles with neighborhood councils, which is usually a forum for people, but there, it, wherever do, local media does exist, it can really, really help. Bless you. But what I was thinking about more is that cities do have websites and cities do, when it comes to like development, at least there's, there's always some place where permits get pulled it has to be public Mm. so you can just on a lot of websites put in an address and see what's going on so it's it that's not a solution because it's clearly like you have to take the step to do it it's not just you know what's going on so it it, the idea of things happening in shadowy boardrooms and and you know on trips to vegas or you know like on you know phone conversations that you're not a part of is true to an extent but there's also ways in which you can kind of notice and get involved like i don't i don't really have a specific no that's fine example on mine but like there there are ways of finding out more about your city it just does unfortunately require right now a lot of your own volition (laughs) that's that's really tough for people especially like when you're working a lot like if you don't have a lot of time like you can't expect those people to get and that's like as a planner, those are the people I'm often like tasked with reaching all the time. Like, how mm-hmm. do you get the people we haven't talked to yet? It's like, yeah, we've already talked to so-and-so association at this neighborhood. We've already talked to this business group. We've already talked to this one business owner who lives on the corner. How do we get the people who are like getting, and like part of it is just like, my job probably has to involve like waiting at a bus stop and finding people to stand around and be like, hi, I work for the, you know, so-and-so can I get your thoughts on something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, you get some people who are really innovative in doing that. You don't get that everywhere though. And right. So. Right. Right. So it needs to be opened up a little bit more. Well, yeah. all right. I think that's, that's fair. I think it's clear that there's a hole that the local media needs to fill. I agree for some of this. And it's obvious to me that cities need to experience a little bit more democratic control than they do. I think you and yeah. I, 
Um, at least more representative. At least just right, like, right, right. Yeah, it's not that elections. like. Yeah, exactly. Just I mean, at a basic representative level, yeah. you know, where turnout increases. So when you're taking a look at the American scene, the American urban scene, what's given you hope these days? Oh wow, I do think. Hmm. Where 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 could we start? I do think there is at least like. I think what kind of gave me hope initially about moving to Los Angeles, you know, studying urban planning here and eventually working in urban planning here is that like, there is such a desire to see the mistakes of transportation plans past kind of change. I do think that that exists here. And that's why I I like working here and living here is that you had people vote to tax themselves twice to build new train lines and uh, improve transit service. And of course, like the details of it matter, but the fact that people are still at least willing to kind of throw off the old adage of like, Oh, people don't want to vote themselves to get taxed. It's like, well, you Mm -hmm. know, like, yeah, sure. We can argue about whether the taxation was an elegant policy solution. I don't personally have like that strong an opinion on it, but you at least have the desire there. And I think there's a desire there in a lot of places too. I think that there's clearly people who want to see more options as far as they get around or more options as like what sort of, you know, living situations they could have. I, I, I don't think like we're America and we are the place of huge lawns everywhere and we have to drive everywhere is necessarily the, the future. And I think people having more choice will then open it up to be like more of a normalized thing. So we stop having enough of these stupid Twitter fights that I don't like. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think the, I, I do think that my hope is that certain policy things will get kind of easier to argue as there's a bigger constituency for better transit and for, you know, better quality housing. I mean, we're, we're seeing like in California, like I think, you know, we've seen the decline of public housing throughout the country. And in California, we now have a bill that's been proposed to like reinvigorate, make like a new California housing authority that like actually tackles the problem. It's just like, look, like if, if, neglect of public housing has been this, you know, ossifying issue, like, let's stop it. There's now some political mm-hmm. momentum, at least happening in some circles. So I, I do hope that spreads to other places. And there's enough people who understand how multifaceted these issues are and can legislate appropriately. All right. All right. I like that. So one last thing before sure. we go, what, let's give people some homework. What are some books you can recommend to help them better understand urban. Uh, I mean, I guess I, I legally have to let people know that the power broker by Robert Caro exists, but I'll, I'll be the first to admit that uh, I'm guilty of not finishing that one. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. That one's gigantic. Crabgrass frontier is good. I want to, I, I wish I'd, God, I wish I'd prepared like a book list before, but like another one that's just like, kind of like if you're really into the weeds and really want to get nerdy about transportation stuff like I do um he's like now been pretty accepted but the high cost of free parking by Donald Shoup Mm. by local LA professor Donald Shoup is yeah he's uh he's he's the he kind of asked the question he was like hey how does parking impact the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) no one's really definitively answered this yet we have laws requiring parking in all these places and it has to be to these standards, like what's going on here. And he was the first person to actually like question the science about it. And turns out it's not a science. So <laughs> as most, as most interesting pursuits tend to be, you can't necessarily quantify social science stuff as like a quantification thing, but he's a, 
he's that book is really really important at least to me to really understand like oh my god this is like the dna of every city is like he's looking at it and he said like we've been mutated (laughs) (laughs) we've been suffering a horrible horrible illness here and we can we can stop it so i think that's a pretty good one if you're really nerdy about transportation cool all right well we'll leave it there xander thanks so much for joining me this was a blast maybe we can do it again sometime i'd love to i'd love to to answer more questions about cities and hopefully i can come with even more knowledge next time yeah well all right i'm always learning i'm not i'm not by any stretch of the imagination a genius so yeah hey we all are so guys thanks for joining us we will see you next week stay safe out there Senses that I clutched Made a date with divinity But she wouldn't let me fuck I got touched by a hazy shade of God Helped me change Caught a rush on the floor From the life in my veins From a head full of pressure Rest the senses that I clutched Made a date with divinity But she wouldn't let me fuck I got touched by a hazy shade of God Helped me change Caught a rush on the floor From the life in my veins It goes one for the cannabis And two for your Dianetics Three for the reasoning And four for those that try to get it Five for your love And six for the stress and seven for the day that i climbed into this mess from a head full of pressure rest senses that i clutch. i made a date with divinity but she wouldn't let me fuck. and i got touched by a shader help me and caught a rush on the floor from the light in my face i'm catching ulcers from the childproof lighters and all of these fine tooth fighters that keep the wires in my head tighter i'm tired out by the distances achieved walking in my sleep thoughts got shifted since the high got a tad too deep past dad to keep cool i call him back soon as I resume normal and get out of this bathroom and call management to seek some reimbursement for the nerve endings that burn from the first hits from a head full of pressure as the senses that I clutched made a date with divinity but she wouldn't let me fuck I got touched by a hazy shade of God helped me change caught a rush on the floor from the life in my veins head full of pressure as the senses that I clutched made a date with divinity but she wouldn't let me fuck and I got touched by a hazy shade of God helped me change caught a rush on the floor from the life in my veins so fuck needles fuck smoke fuck lines that make the sinus choke fuck chases trails fuck waves and rails fuck hangovers, fuck hallucinations, regurgitations, mandatory sentences, and you wait tracing, blind my insight and all the common sense, give me inhibition, kill the superstition and the confidence, built a tolerance, now it's more that I consume, and when it pours up my room, the world's whores will croon, in unison, unify the eulogy, autopsy pages read euthanasia, i.e. irony, well here I be, within a pool of my drool, sedated, windows dilated, comatose, life overdose, tell Jacob my to keep it 
it wild style. I promise I'll smile and check the floor. God's got nice tile. Tell Jake Miles keep that shit wild style, and I'll smile and check the floor. God's got nice tile. From my head full of pressure, as the senses that I clutched made a date with divinity, but she wouldn't let me fuck. And I got touched by your hazy shade of God. Help me change. Caught a rush on the floor from the life in my veins. From my head full of pressure, as the senses that I clutched. I made a date with divinity, but she wouldn't let me fuck. And I got touched by your hazy shade of God. Help me change. Caught a rush on the floor from the life in my veins. Head pressure, senses clutch, date divinity. Wouldn't fuck, touched, hazy, God, change, rush, floor, life.